Hello, everybody. Um, uh, this is Sean, the host of the Atari 7800 Homebrew Podcast. Uh, I like to put my own style into things. As as you heard from uh, episode zero, I had that plan nine introduction and episode one, I had that little stand-up comedy introduction and episode two, I had the ballad of Casey Munchkin and um, episodes three and four, I didn't really do all that much to put my own little touch in there. I got some feedback from a couple of people saying that they really liked that I did that. Well, here's the thing. Uh, This episode is talking about Dungeon Stalker. And, um, well, there's a little bit of a problem for me with that because I don't really do the dungeon thing. I was never into, say, Dungeons and Dragons. I was never, like, into that, uh, adventure kind of stuff. Um, well, although I do love adventure on the 2600, um, I, I just never was into the dungeon-y stuff. I was never into the world of wizardry, although I did highly enjoy the Harry Potter series, both books and movies. And, uh, so I just really don't know what creative thing I could do with, uh, Dungeon Stalker. I, I just, it, it just wouldn't, I don't know, I just couldn't come up with anything that would work. Um, and especially since the main character is a woman, and uh, in case you can't tell, I am not a woman. Uh, yeah, I have, I have a wife, but she's not into video games, so having her participate in this just really wouldn't uh, uh, make much sense. So um, I apologize, folks. You're going to have to deal with just... Uh, um, just the basics, I guess. So, um, no creative, witty things or anything with this for this episode. But uh, uh, I will try again. I will try something for episode six. Notice I said try. Uh, anyway, um, here's episode five. Hey everybody, thank you for downloading the Atari 7800 Homebrew Podcast. This is Sean, your place adjective here host, and this is episode 5. Episode 5, we're going to be talking about Dungeon Stalker for the Atari 7800. Well, what other console would we be dedicating in episode 2, right? So hope uh, you've all been doing okay. I've almost been doing okay. Uh, I don't know. It's not been a good month in terms of my health. I mean, I had this nasty stomach virus that's been going around. And then as soon as I got over that, I caught a cold or something because it's been causing congestion. And I I almost called out of work again, but I didn't want to. And hopefully I didn't infect any of my coworkers. In fact, you might still be able to hear a little bit of congestion in my voice. So I'm still getting over that. And, um, Let's just face it. I need to lose a ton of weight. I've been like that all my life. I really have been. Um, not quite as bad not, uh, uh, when I was younger as I as I am now. <laughs> but I the fact is I need to lose weight. So a few years ago, I bought myself a bike because I, f- I figured out that the only exercise I, that doesn't depress me <laughs> is exercise that involves going places like walking. Um, I actually tried running a couple of times. I was like, okay, this is cool. Cause I actually feel like I'm doing something and I bought a bike. And so I've been riding my bike whenever I can. And, uh, for the past couple of years, I've been riding my bike to and from work, weather permitting and by weather permitting. I mean, if it's not raining or lightning out because well, for one thing, I, <clears throat> my bike commute is nine miles one way. And I don't want my stuff getting wet. (laughs) And also, when you expose your bike to too much rain at once, it's not really good for it. So basically, it's got to be a day that it's either not raining or it's just spritzing out when I take my bike. 
And also, I figured out that I have a 30-degree tolerance, I guess. If it's colder than 30 degrees out, I just can't deal with the uh, riding my bike, with the wind blowing in my face, especially because I live right by Lake Michigan, and where I work is right by Lake Michigan. So basically being, uh, there's an expression we have out here called cooler by the lake. And that is so, so true. Last Thursday, not the past Thursday from when this episode was released, but the Thursday before it was in the thirties. So it's like, you know what? I better break out the bike and start getting my act together. It's been unusually warm here in Chicago for February and thirties is unusually warm actually. So I took my bike to work and uh, there's a bike path that goes from really close to where I live. It's called the Lakefront Trail because it basically follows Lake Michigan and it goes all the way down to the south side of Chicago. And I usually take that to work when I take my bike. And right when you get downtown, probably about a half a mile north of Navy Pier, there's this curve in the lakefront trail. And it's, it's a pretty wide, the trail itself is pretty wide at that point. There's like two lanes and then there's a lot of uh, asphalt on either side of the two lanes. So, um, I noticed that everybody who's on the trail, like bikers and joggers, they're all crowding into that little inner contour of asphalt. That's to the like if you're heading south, it's to the right of the right bike lane and maybe about uh, five, six feet away. If that, maybe even more than that, there's a concrete wall. So traffic on Lakeshore drive doesn't crash into you basically. And I'm wondering why is everybody crowding into this little gap? I'm staying in the bike lane. And then I find out why everybody's crowding into that gap because there was a huge patch of ice that I didn't see, but everybody else did see. And, uh, yeah, so I had a really spectacular wipeout and if I had slid maybe a foot, a foot and a half more than what I did, I would have ended up in the lake. So I would have been really mad. And to this day, my right arm just is in, it's, it's just annoying me. I don't think it's broken cause I can still move it and everything. I can still use it, but it's not feeling good. My, my knee and my leg, the, the rest of the right side of my body is healing really nicely, but the arm is taking its sweet time, but at least I can still use it. Um, so that was quite an experience and, uh, my bike got all tangled up. Thankfully it was a very, very quick fix, <laughs> but, but Hey, I got right back on it. I took my bike home that night and I took it back to work on the same trail the next day, no ice this time. And now it is what I think it's going to be 70 degrees the day I'm recording this. So, uh, yeah, that's how crazy weather has been here in Chicago. February is usually when it's below zero, or if we get a blizzard, it'll probably be in February. So, uh, yeah, that's how, uh, how my life has been lately. But, um, anyway, there's something I want to address that I mentioned in the previous episode, and that's the Mateos 16 in one rewritable multi-cart. Uh, it's a flash cart that, uh, <clears throat> and of course I'm talking about the one for the Atari 7800. There's also one for Vectrex and I believe the Odyssey 2, or if you're in Europe, the video pack, and the Atari Lynx. And I mentioned before how I couldn't figure out how to get mine working. Well, I finally figured it out, so now I can actually talk about this thing. Um, Bobby Adad had previously said, hey, you, talk, you said you're going to talk about homebrew hardware. We'll talk about this thing. So I actually got myself one. So I 
don't recall off the top of my head everything I said about it in the previous episode, so I'll just tell you exactly what it is right now. I believe I put a link to that in the show notes for the previous episode, but I'll do that again for this one. The Mateos 16-in-1 multi-cart is, um, it's basically a rewritable game cartridge, and there's a little dial. Well, it's not so much a dial, it's kind of like a potentiometer, and uh, you can either use your fingers or a flathead screwdriver to turn it. And uh, what happens is you use that little dial to select one of 16 banks. It's numbered 0 through F, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. That's uh, 0 through 10 and then A through F. It's hexadecimal. And that's basically how you choose a game. Like if you're in position 0, then that means that if you are writing a ROM to the cart, it's going into bank 0. And that's also how you can switch a game when you're playing a game off of it. And uh, if you're a regular listener of this podcast, you heard me talk about ROM size. In fact, I'm going to talk about that again today. (laughs) But um, you heard me talk about the, let's say, 2K versus 4K with the Odyssey 2 cartridges. And that's also going to be kind of coming into play with the Mateos cart because there are standard sizes for Atari 7800 ROMs. There's like 32K, 48K, et cetera, et cetera. And the Mateos cart can handle them all up to 128K, and if they go beyond that, then you have to flip a little switch on the cart. And the thing is, when you have to have a ROM that you have to flip the switch for, then you're kind of down to eight banks, because bigger ROMs are going to require two different banks, kind of adjacent to each other. So at that point, what happens is, banks 0 and 8 share a slot, 1 and 9, 2 and 10, 3 and 11 or no, not not 2 and 10, 2 and A, 3 uh, three and B, et cetera, et cetera. So you see what I'm getting at. So basically, if you have a ROM on there that's 128K or bigger, then you're now down to an 8 and 1, just due to the spacing requirements and the way this thing works. But what you do is you load ROMs onto the thing, quite simply. You connect to your computer with a USB cable. I believe it's a mini USB uh, I, I I can never keep straight the uh, the micro and the mini USB. I think that whichever one is the thicker of the two, that's the one that you you need. Uh, and you basically connect it to your computer and you drag and drop a ROM to one of the banks. Before you drop the ROM into it, you have to strip the header off of it. The, the Mateos website has a utility that'll do that stripping for you. Um, I'm lucky because uh, there was a friend who emailed me just about every Atari 7800 ROM out there, almost every Atari 7800 ROM out there with the headers already stripped. So you could just get right down to business with the Mateos. It was specifically stripped for that. So that was uh, very helpful. So thank you uh, if you're listening to that. And uh, there were some issues. I think this is where I started this. I kind of mentioned this briefly last episode, but there are issues under certain circumstances. Uh, Mac users are going to have some issues possibly and um, I figured out how to get around those issues. Uh, the Mateos website has a kind of a step-by-step guide as to what to do if you use a Mac. I didn't find those instructions very helpful for my purposes, so I came up with another way that I found works really well. Basically, what you want to do is when you mount the Mateos cartridge onto your Mac, you want to make sure that there is absolutely nothing 
on that Mateos cartridge. Because I guess what happens is when a drive, it basically mounts as a drive on your Mac. And when a drive is mounted on a Mac, the Mac is going to put a couple of, a uh, couple of files on there. You got to clear those things out before you copy the, uh, before you copy a ROM over. And I found an easy way to do that is through the terminal. You open up a terminal window and you CD into the Mateos cart. I believe the volume name is drive underscore name. And you just do an RM on everything. Um, I have a video on this and I will post a link to that in the show notes. If you follow the Atari 7800 homebrew podcast, YouTube channel, then you can already see that, but I will post a direct link to the video that I, that I made as to how to deal with the Mateos cart. If you have a Mac, I'll post a link to that in the show notes. And I think some windows users who use Norton or some other kind of antivirus might have an issue as well. Uh, has something to do with something they put on drives to, I don't know. I don't know the whole thing, but, uh, um, I, you know what, I should also put a link to the discussion of on Atari age, the discussion thread in Atari age too, in the show notes, cause that'll be really helpful too. But, uh, but yeah, I've been using the, uh, Mateos cartridge and especially for the Atari, uh, high score club on Atari age, because there was, Oh, what the heck game was it? Kung Fu master was the game, uh, during the time of this recording. And I don't own a copy of Kung Fu master. And I wasn't sure if I got one from eBay, if it would get here in time or, or, or any other source for that matter. So just to be safe, I just got the ROM and I loaded it up on the Mateos cartridge and I played it off that. But this is a really, really nice cartridge here. Uh, it only plays 7,800 ROMs. You can't uh, play 2,600 ROMs off of it unless there's some kind of way to hack it on there. The Mateos cartridge is a bare board. Right now, um, there's no case for it. Uh, what I did was I did a really terrible hack job on an old street racer cartridge, and I mounted my Mateos cart in that. Uh, spent a lot of time with a Dremel, and uh, this thing looks really terrible, but at least the, the Mateos cart has a, uh, has a shell on it of some kind, some kind of protection. I hope that Juan Mateos does come out with uh, some kind of a shell, some kind of a cartridge shell you can put this into. Uh, from what I hear, the Mateos cart works best with an Atari 7800 cartridge shell. So if you have like a non-working cartridge, then I guess open that sucker up, pop out the non-working board and you can put the Mateos in that. And you'll need to carve some holes in there. Like you'll have to carve a, some kind of hole to access the, uh, the switch I was talking about switch, uh, to go over 128 K and you'll have to account for the little zero through F potentiometer that I talked about. We have to select a game. Oh, and also something that, uh, something that I mentioned on the last episode is that there is a slot on the Mateos cart that will allow you to put a pokey chip on it. And I said, well, if you have a spare ball blazer cartridge or something, and I talked about how if you go on eBay and look up ball blazer, that for some reason, the ball blazer cartridges are priced outrageously high, like three digits right now. And, um, one of our uh, friend of the show, Michael D'Angelo, uh, commented about that. He said that, uh, you can get boxed copies for $13. And I noticed that it's, it's weird. Like the boxed copies of ball blazer on eBay are cheaper than the loose ones. I don't know. It's, it's just ridiculous. And, uh, you could probably get a copy from, uh, best electronics and 
Bobby Adad, who I mentioned before, chimed in and said, do not sacrifice your ball blazer cartridges. Don't cannibalize one of those things. And he posted a link to uh, a UK-based eBay seller who was uh, offering a bunch of pokey chips for a reasonable price. Um, I think the cost of the pokey plus shipping for me, I actually ordered one. I think it was maybe $20 and that's including shipping. So I have one of those on the way and I think you can get some uh, pokey chips from best electronics as well. Although I think they're pricier that way. So, uh, that's what I had to say about all that stuff. I want to address some general feedback. And of course, you know, general feedback is the superior of private message. But anyway, I heard from Philip the Whovian who says, Hello, I just listened to the Casey Munchkin episode. Thank you for reading my feedback. Uh, you're welcome, Philip. I think the legal action against Magnavox only affected the U.S. It is quite common here in Britain, usually going for over five to seven pounds. I got my copy for two pounds. I remember seeing an ad for the game from 1983 in the U.K. as well. Personally, I prefer the video pack box art, unlike everyone else, it seems. I think everything looks horrific on the cover, but the video pack art isn't brilliant either. I think the concept of homebrew is great, as it keeps those consoles alive. However, I dislike it when physical copies are made out of existing cartridges. Now, it may seem like there are a million copies of Super Mario Brothers, but in a hundred years' time... They will probably be few and far between, and on consoles with a smaller number of sales like the 7800, I feel that cannibalizing cartridges will cause this situation in less time. These games need to be preserved, and homebrew sometimes interferes with that. Just to be clear, I love homebrew, but preservations of the history of video games needs to come first. But I still think the physical boxes and cartridges would look nice on my shelf. And Philip, thank you so much for your comment on that. And I got to be honest here. I, I do think of that sometimes myself. It's like, okay, so uh, like Albert on Atari age, like he will take common Atari 2600 and 7800 cartridges and recycle the shells to use them for homebrew cartridge shells. And I often wonder, yeah, everybody has about 80 trillion combat carts in their collection. But how long is it going to be until they're not so common, until they're actually kind of a rare commodity? You got to wonder about that. The good news, though, is I do know that there are 3D printable cartridge shells. I don't know what Albert plans to do with those or any of the other homebrew vendors, such as Good Deal Games and... Um, Oh, what's the other one that I got? Uh, I got a homebrew from uh, last year. I got two homebrews actually last year from them. Uh, they're based out of Wisconsin. Um, hold on a second. I'm going to check. Pack Rat Video Games. Pack Rat Video Games. Uh, I don't believe they have any 7800 stuff, just 2600 Odyssey 2, and I think Vectrex. In fact, I know Vectrex because I played a homebrew version of Frogger on a Vectrex at Midwest Gaming Classic last year. But uh, yeah, so I think, you know what? Even, what the heck? I'll just put a link to uh, Pack Rat Video Games LLC in the show notes. And uh, let's see, they're based out of Milwaukee. But yeah, that is an excellent point you bring up, Phil. Thank you so much for uh, for your feedback there. Anyway, um, we should probably be talking about Dungeon Stalker. And 
Dungeon Stalker for the Atari 7800. It is a homebrew game that is based on, inspired by, influenced by an Intellivision game called Night Stalker. So let's talk about Night Stalker. In the game Night Stalker, your character was simply a man who was trapped in a maze, a hedgerow maze, and somehow being tracked down by robots while dodging spiders and bats. You don't really see robots in hedgerow mazes very much, do you? But anyway, the man starts in the middle of the maze inside a bunker, and as long as he is completely inside the bunker, he's safe from all the enemies and all the enemy fire. Because uh, the enemies actually shoot at you, and uh, at least until the black robot appears. We'll talk about the black robot later. But uh, the robots that appear, you're going to see some gray ones, blue, white, black, and invisible robot. Well, you're not going to see the invisible robots, but you, you get the point. But over the course of the game, you're going to see those different color robots in that order, each with increasing levels of difficulty, of aggressiveness, if you will. The gray robot shows up after you shoot the bat, after you score your first 5,000 points. And then after that point, you will also see a blue robot. The white robot shows up after you reach 15,000 points. And the thing about the white robot is the white robot has a shield. So you need to shoot the white robot three times before you can destroy it. After you reach 30,000 points, the black robot shows up and it can fire white energy bolts at you. And if you get hit by an energy bolt, your bullets can be absorbed by that thing. And after 50,000 points, the black robot can shoot yellow energy bolts that actually are capable of destroying your bunker little by little. Think warlords, if you will. And the invisible robot will be there after 80,000 points. Actually, my notes say the invisible robot appears after 80,000 points, but that doesn't really make sense, does it? How does an inv something invisible appear? Anyway. Technically, you don't really immediately have any means of defense, but you can pick up a gun that'll appear in a random part of the maze. And once you have the gun, it's good for six shots, and it'll help you protect yourself against spiders, bats, and robots. And it's one of those deals when uh, if you shoot once, you can't shoot again until the bullet that you fire is no longer on the screen. So once it hits something or just disappears, then you can fire again. Video game physics, I guess. And after you fire the sixth shot that your gun provides, a new gun will appear in the maze somewhere at random, and you have to go pick it up. And basically, you repeat that pattern as you use your bullets. If you are attacked by a bat or a spider, you're going to be paralyzed for a few seconds. And if you shoot a bat or a spider, another one's going to regenerate right away. If a robot shoots a bat, the bat's going to regenerate as well. After you reach 5,000 points, if you shoot a bat, a gray robot will take its place. You start off with six lives, and you get an extra life for every 10,000 points you score. And if you kill a spider, you get 100 points, 300 points for a bat, 500 points for the blue robot, 1,000 for the white robot, 2,000 for the black robot, and 4,000 for the invisible robot. Mattel, who is the maker of Intellivision, the maker of the first-party games, of course, they released Night Stalker for Intellivision and also the Atari 2600 
under the M Network division, except it was called Dark Cavern on the Atari 2600. And because the Atari 2600 and the Intellivision had different capabilities, Dark Cavern had a few differences besides the name. And I do, I'm guessing that it, the two games are different enough that a new title was warranted as well. So that might have, that might be why. But anyway, one of the differences is that in the game Dark Cavern, your gun actually provides 20 bullets before it runs out. There's no bat in Dark Cavern, but instead there's a blob that will steal bullets from you. And if you put the difficulty switch in position A, the harder position, the robots are going to have two heads. And because they're two heads, they have the ability to fire bullets at you in two different directions. So I guess, I don't know, does that mean they fire bullets from their heads? I don't know. I don't know how they explain that myself. But anyway, Steve Montero was the guy who designed and programmed the original Night Stalker, and he originally titled it Attacker. Peter Allen did the graphics for Night Stalker, and Russ Lieblich did the sound. And in fact, rumor has it that Russ was so proud of the sound he did for the game, especially the sound that goes on in Night Stalker that's kind of a heartbeat sound. He was so proud of that that if he heard one of his co-workers playing or testing the game, he would run over to that TV set and turn the volume up full blast. Now, Steve Montero was an expert in robotics, so it was generally felt that he would be a natural to program Night Stalker, what with the robots in the game. And when he was developing it, it was a pretty popular game. So other programmers at Mattel, they didn't need a lot of arm twisting to help uh, test it and QA it. And there's a popular story going around about the game, the marketing department at Mattel. So the story goes, they brought in a 12 year old to try the game and he advanced further in the game than any of the programmers on staff. So because of that, Mattel decided that there needed to be a new, a more aggressive robot added to the game. But unfortunately, because of size limitations and memory limitations, in order to do that, they had to sacrifice a major feature. There was going to be a spider web in the game. Now, you might remember, I mentioned this earlier in the episode, and I mentioned this in a previous episode, too. There's a memory size that's an issue. Uh, well, Night Stalker was programmed on a 4-kilobyte cartridge, but they would need more if they wanted to put the spider web back and keep that more aggressive robot intact. The original plan was that the spider would leave a web in the maze that would slow you down, and you'd have to either avoid the web or shoot it away or just deal with it. And we'll talk more about that later on. After Night Stalker was finished, Mattel was starting to go beyond that 4K limit that I talked about, basically because they loved the ideas they came up with for Night Stalker. So Steve Montero wanted to take advantage of that and work on a sequel, which he tentatively called Ms. Night Stalker. And Ms. Night Stalker would have included some features that had to be left out of Night Stalker, such as the aforementioned spiderweb. There were also going to be different types of weapons, uh, different mazes, and smarter robots. But the marketing department didn't like the idea, so Steve Montero was assigned to work on the game's space shuttle instead. And uh, if you ever listen to Pie Factory podcast, my other podcast, you may have heard my uh, co-host Jimmy G say, and I quote, marketing ruins everything. <laughs> and I can't blame him for saying that, especially after hearing this about Ms. Night Stalker. But anyway... Shortly after Space Shuttle was in the works, Steve Montero left not only Mattel, but the video game industry altogether. Night Stalker came out for the Intellivision on May 6th, 1982. 
and Dark Cavern for the 2600 was released sometime later that year, but I was unable to determine exactly when, unfortunately. Night Stalker was also released for the Apple II and the IBM PC in 1983, and there was also a version released for the Mattel Aquarius home computer system. No big surprise there. From what I gather, the Aquarius was basically uh, Mattel's equivalent to, say, the Atari 8-bit computers uh, vis-a-vis Atari 5200 slash Intellivision. Ms. Night Stalker eventually did come out for the Intellivision as a homebrew in 2014. And the product description listed on Intellivision.us reads, and I quote, Your man did not ask for directions and is now trapped in a maze. It is time for the Miz to save him by choice. He gave the robots, bats, and spider a run for their money, but now they know better. They are more relentless than ever and will hunt you down. Stop a robot from chasing you by destroying it, but you never know if the next one that appears will give you more grief. Keep your cool, Ms. Night Stalker. You will need it. Now, what I've been habitually doing with this podcast is talking about the history of the 7800 game before I actually talk about the gameplay, but I'm going to kind of reverse that this time. And I just want to go into about the game Dungeon Stalker itself. Now, fans of Night Stalker on Intellivision will love Dungeon Stalker. And in fact, Night Stalker fans who have played Dungeon Stalker absolutely love it. The premise of Dungeon Stalker is that you are an archer. And as a twist on the usual video game tropes, you are a female archer. And you are stuck in a mazed dungeon with no exits. And your only hope is to fight off the enemies by shooting arrows at them. Almost has kind of a slight Hunger Games vibe to it, doesn't it? But um, anyway, I'll talk about what those enemies are. There's a demon bat, which really doesn't chase you, but it will shoot at you when you are within its range. And to kill the demon bat, you need to shoot it once. But starting with level five, you need to shoot that thing twice to kill it. There's a snake, which is a bit faster than the demon bat, and it requires two shots to kill. And that's at every level. The first level, the later levels... Any level, it always requires two shots. The Skeleton Warrior is probably the fiercest enemy. It requires two shots to kill, and it's the fastest moving enemy, and it can shoot blocking arrows, which will, well, as the name implies, block your shots. There's a spider that meanders around the maze, and it will, from time to time, stop and spin a web. And if you let that spider spin a web, you can shoot the web away, but it requires a total of four shots and you have to aim and shoot your arrows at different parts of the web to eliminate it. If you try to walk through one of these webs, that web is going to slow you down. And uh, the webs that I'm talking about now, they're not to be confused with the large web that's in the upper left corner of the screen. And that web cannot be shot away But it doesn't slow you down as much as the smaller webs do. You'll see smaller bats fly around the maze, and if one of those bats touches you, it temporarily paralyzes you. And of course, there's the wizard, which will appear at the end of the level and has the ability to warp to any part of the maze. And your bunker in the middle of the screen cannot protect you from the wizard's shots. The bats, the spider, the wizard, they all require just one shot to kill. 
Wow, I spent a lot of time talking about doom and gloom and enemies in this game. Makes you think that there's no positivity in this game, right? Well, actually, there are some niceties as well. As you are an archer, you have a bow. If you're playing a skill level in which you run out of arrows, which, by the way, is most of them, you can pick up a quiver in the maze when you run out to replenish your arrows. At random times, there's going to be a sword that appears in the maze, and if you pick up that sword, you will be invincible for 20 seconds. And while you are invincible, your reserve lives indicator is replaced by the word God. At random times, you'll see the treasure, which looks like a goblet. You get an extra life with every fifth treasure you pick up, with a maximum of nine lives. At the bottom of the screen, you're given various pieces of information, such as the number of lives you have left, what level you're on, your score, and the number of arrows you have left. And if you have an Atari Vox, Dungeon Stalker will take advantage of that thing, because the game is said to have over three dozen speech phrases. And because the speech synthesis is farmed out to the Atari Vox, when the speech synthesis happened, it's not going to pause the game, unlike with uh, Frenzy and Berserk that I talked about in the previous episode. Yeah. Uh. The Atari Vox is also going to save your high scores, as will any other high score device that you might have that's 7800 compatible, such as the uh, the save key, or if you have one of those uh, uh, development XM units. But anyway, when you first turn on your Atari 7800 with Dungeon Stalker, you're going to see a menu allowing you to choose the skill setting or to view one of the high score tables, with one high score table per skill setting. If you just let it sit there for a while, you don't do anything, don't make any selections, the game is going to go into an attract mode in which there's a demo version that actually plays itself for you. Now, about those skill settings I just talked about, you're going to have four of them. There's novice, there's standard, advanced, and expert, and standard is the default. If you choose novice mode, you get six lives, and the spider will not spin webs in the dungeon, and you have unlimited arrows. If you choose standard skill, you start with five lives and eight arrows. Advanced gives you four lives and seven arrows, and expert gives you three lives and six arrows. The different skill settings, they also control other features. For example, the skeleton warrior. The skeleton warrior is going to shoot shot blocking arrows starting with level five on all settings except expert mode. In fact, in expert mode, all enemies can fire shot-blocking arrows on any level. The skill settings also determine what level you're going to start on. Well, pardon me. Uh, the skill settings also determine on what level you start. We must be grammatical here, folks. Um, novice and Standard will start you on level 1. Advanced will start you on level 2. And Expert will start you on level 3. So... How do you advance to different levels? Well, let me tell you. It is all about your score. When your score reaches 7,500 and you destroy the wizard, you advance to level 2. Then level 3 at 15,000, level 4 at 30,000, level 5 at 60,000. And when your score reaches 37,500, your bunker is vulnerable to attack, and it will erode with each enemy shot that it takes. Like I said before, think warlords. And in fact, your bunker is vulnerable at all times if you choose expert mode. And as you advance levels, the color of the maze changes. 
Not only does your score determine what level to which you advance, I got that grammar right that time, but it also determines your rank. The ranks are, um, in order from lowest to highest, corpse, pig flogger, say that 10 times fast, junior apprentice, apprentice, warrior, and supreme warrior. Basically what happens is you get a higher rank with every 15,000 points. So if you score under 15,000, you're considered a corpse. The exception is Supreme Warrior. And you know what? The manual doesn't actually tell you what score you need to get that rank. It just says question mark next to it. All I can tell you is that the minimum score to get Supreme Warrior is somewhere between 75,400 and 143,000. And uh, in a moment, I'll tell you how I know that. Oh, and since I mentioned what happens when you reach certain scores, I might as well tell you how to get those scores, right? Well, here you go. Uh, You pick up the sword, you get 100 points. You get 500 points if you pick up the treasure. If you kill a spider, you get 200 points. If you kill a bat, you get 300 points. If you kill the demon bat, you get 400 points. Killing a snake will get you 600 points. Killing the skeleton warrior gets you 800 points. And if you kill the wizard, you get 1,200 points. And um, speaking of scores, I like to acknowledge high scores. So I'll tell you about the highest scores I can find. Well, unlike the previous episode, this time I... The highest score I'm going to talk about is not from the Atari Age High Score Club, but some gameplay that I found on YouTube. The highest scores I could find were all from Wilson Oyama, a.k.a. Oyama Family on Atari Age. In novice mode, he scored 143,000, giving him Supreme Warrior ranking. In standard mode, he scored 75,400 points with a ranking of warrior. And you see, that's how I know that uh, somewhere between those two scores is where you're going to reach the Supreme warrior ranking. Uh, Wilson reached um, 60,000 points in advanced mode and in expert mode, he reached 42,400 and that was all done via emulation. And as of this recording, Dungeon Stalker is available in the Atari Age store, and I will put a link to that in the show notes at homebrew78.fab4it.com. You get a cartridge with a four-page manual, and I do have to say this, there are some grammar issues in the manual, and I'm sorry that I have to kind of be critical about that, but I'm just really, really sensitive to written grammar. But however, please do not let that detract you from getting Dungeon Stalker. The manual is really beautifully done. And for an extra charge, you can also get a box. And um, unlike the cartridge, the box is designed to look similar to a typical Atari 7800 cartridge box from the 7800's original lifetime. It's a great box, and it has uh, red text on the spine, but it also has the Atari Age logo. And on the front cover, it says Atari in black and 7800 in red up at the top. And there's more black text that says video game cartridge. And, of course, the cartridge itself has nothing but custom artwork. doesn't look anything like a vintage 7800 cart. It's actually really well done. Dungeon Stalker was designed by Steve Engelhart and Mike Sarna a.k.a. Atarius Maximus and Rev Eng on Atari Age, respectively, with label and manual design by David Exton. It started out in early 2015 as an homage, as it were, to Night Stalker, but it evolved into a much more featured game. 
The game was written entirely in 7800 Basic, which itself is a homebrew in a way. And the first work-in-progress version of both the game and its manual were posted to Atari Age on April 1st of that year. And by this time, there were hundreds of hours invested in the development, with a lot of credit going to Trevor for testing and uh, making sure it was as bug-free as possible. Well, let's face it, that's what, exactly what testing is. But uh, anyway, uh, many users realized, wait a minute, it's April Fool's Day. Uh, not that it really made much of a difference, because, well, that was a playable version that was posted, so it's not a fake. It wasn't a fake. There's no way it could have been. So anyway, Steve posted a bug-fixed version on April 3rd, and then on April 7th, he posted the source code asking that nobody post a hacked or modified version of Dungeon Stalker until it had seen a cartridge release. On May 31st, Steve posted David Exton's label artwork, and on July 7th, there was the first posting of a release candidate, which had uh, new colors, new gameplay enhancements, updates to how scoring happened, and some new Atari Vox speech, and uh, some more bug fixes, of course. Then on the 22nd of July, there was a slightly revised and more bug-fixed version posted, and the following weekend, the Dungeon Stalker cartridge made its public debut at Classic Game Fest in Austin. The final release was posted to Atari Age on August 5th, and it was made available for sale at the Portland Retro Gaming Expo the weekend of October 17th, with the latest source code being posted on October 21st. And in addition to the basic gameplay being based on Night Stalker, there were some features added that were obviously inspired by other games. The Snake and the Quiver come from the Intellivision game Advanced Dungeons & Dragons, and the Skeleton Warrior comes from the Intellivision's Advanced Dungeons & Dragons Treasures of Tarmin. Some of the sounds were inspired by the Atari 2600 game Adventure, and the Wizard character is arguably inspired by Wizard of War. And the small spider webs that slow your character down are an homage to Ms. Night Stalker. While many users were looking forward to the changing mazes of Ms. Night Stalker, Steve didn't consider that due to space limitations, as the game was already 48k as it was, and he didn't want to make it any bigger. Also, the graphics are done in what is called 320A mode, which limits the number of colors on screen to 8. Watch out, my life is more As usual, I posted on forums.atari.io and the Atari Age forums asking for feedback about the game this week. Um, unfortunately, I did not receive any feedback from Atari.io on Dungeon Stalker, which I can kind of understand. A lot of the people on um, Atari.io haven't really uh, stepped into the homebrew waters yet, and those that have uh, typically have the more common ones, like, say, Pac-Man Collection or Frenzy or whatever else have you. But over on Atari Age, you got some response. S. Ramirez 2008 says... I've had my Intellivision 2 for a few months now, and Night Stalker was one of the first games I purchased. I've owned Dungeon Stalker since it first came out, and wanted to try out the game that it pays homage to. I like Night Stalker, but it's too slow, and the controls are a bit difficult, so I decided to purchase an LTO Flash cart. 
I had to say it that way, by the way, flash, because there's an exclamation point on it. And uh, I, I, I normally would just yell it, but I don't want to bother the neighbors. But uh, anyway, uh, going back to S. Ramirez, 2008. Uh, and the very first ROM I bought was Ms. Night Stalker. That game is a step up from the original, but still a bit hard to control. It may just be me, but there are some Intellivision games that I just can't seem to play well, even with my new flashback controllers. Dungeon Stalker, however, is great. The title screen is well done, and if you remain on it, the game will go into a track mode, complete with in-game sounds. All of the characters, Spider, Bat, Snake, Demon Bat, and Skeleton Warrior, are rendered nicely and scroll smoothly. I really like the animation of the Skeleton Warrior as well as the Wizard. The Wizard is a treat to watch as he teleports throughout the dungeon while trying to kill you, and killing him provides a nice explosion and sound effect. Lastly, adding an Atari Vox makes this great game even better. It supports high score saves, and of all of my homebrews, this game by far includes the greatest variety of speech that I have heard. I give it 5 out of 5 quivers. And a little thumbs up icon. Note, the game manual includes the awesome label art, and the last page includes a strategy and secrets section that requires you hold it up to a mirror to read. A really nice touch, in my opinion. Yeah, that's right. I forgot to mention that. Thanks for mentioning that. This premieres 2008. And thank you for your feedback, uh, period. Oh, that LTO flash that S. Ramirez 2008 mentioned, <laughs> wouldn't you know it? It's basically an Intellivision equivalent to the Mateos cart that I talked about earlier. You can copy Intellivision ROMs to it, and um, there you go. I should put a link to some information about that thing in the show notes, by the way. And yeah, the hard-to-control thing. Um, um, S. Ramirez 2008, I'm not sure if the Intellivision 2 was your first ever Intellivision, but I don't know. I'm just kind of inferring from how you said that, that that you've had that for a few months. I'm guessing that this is your first experience with Intellivision. And yeah, Intellivision is one of those consoles that gets uh, a bad rap for its controllers. I'm sure everybody listening knows what I'm talking about. It's those little flat controllers with the disc on it. And uh, the problem with that, I don't remember if I mentioned this in a previous episode, the problem with those disc controllers is that people tend to use them as if they were D-pads. I know I did back when I first started playing in television in the early 80s. But I had read somewhere, I think it was somebody on Atari Age who said that if you use the disc as a D-pad, you're doing it all wrong. Like, let's say you're holding the, you're going up and then you want to go down. A lot of people would just like push the down portion on the D-pad, but apparently that's not the best thing to do. The best thing to do is to kind of rotate your thumb, like hold the D-pad, but keep holding the D-pad up, but rotate your thumb down and then you'll have better control. And you know what? I tried that and it actually worked really well. Or what you can do is, um, I'm pretty sure I mentioned this before, but I know that they made these little joystick tops that you could actually stick on your Intellivision cover. I don't know if it required removing the disc or if you just stick it on top of the disc, but I remember my cousin's Intellivision had that, and it worked incredibly well. So that might help you with uh, Night Stalker and Ms. Night Stalker. But yeah, I love the speech in... Uh, well, I love any spe any speech in these uh, homebrew games, really. So thank you for your feedback, Estramares2008. Toilet Tunes says, 
A cross between Night Stalker and Wizard of War, Dungeon Stalker improves on Dark Chambers. I like the ability to dodge shots, and the spider's web is an added strategy challenge. Sometimes the Atari Vox freaks out and gets stuck in Wall-E sword fight mode, which is a cross between amusing and annoying. The challenge ramps up slowly but steady. A great marathon game and the only homebrew box in my collection. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, I think I remember hearing something about how uh, there were some bugs with the Atari Vox, at least during development. But uh, from what I understand, if you have that problem, you can either just... uh, Obviously, just ignore it and disconnect the sound from the Atari Vox. And, and by the way, that's the one thing I don't like about the Atari Vox, and I know there was no way around it. I do not fault the developers at all. But with the Atari Vox, it has its own audio output, which means you have to rig up a speaker or some kind of mixer or something. It's crazy. I'm going to post a video of uh, some Dungeon Stalker gameplay with the Atari Vox on it, and I'm having... See, I don't really have the greatest sound setup in the world, at least not the most convenient sound setup. So in the video, I have the Atari Vox connected to my Vox AC30 guitar amplifier, which I guess works because it's a Vox amp and Atari Vox. So, hey, what better pairing, right? But, um, yeah. And the thing is, like, I personally haven't come across that problem yet, but the truth is, I haven't had an Atari Vox for very long. Most of my gameplay with Dungeon Stalker has been without Atari Vox. So um, that you have to try it some more, see if I can uh, get that problem to come up. But uh, Toilatoons, thank you. And Trevor, who, as I mentioned before, was involved in the testing of the game, apparently uh, very much so from what I gather. Trevor says, starting with the introduction screen, the player knows they're in for a treat. A polished presentation providing atmosphere and ambiance for a game in which the individual will likely feel as if they're being drawn into dark dungeons of danger. There, haven't used that uh, little drop-in for this episode yet. Sorry about the uh, overdoing it in the last episode, but hey, I love that little sound. Anyway... (laughs) Trevor goes on to say several gameplay options allow players to start easy with unlimited ammo, while those seeking the ultimate challenge can begin on a higher level where there is no place for protection and the offense of the enemy's encounter is most deadly and fast. Providing a gambit of enemies coupled with different attack patterns as well as vulnerabilities quickly one realizes this is not just a run around randomly taking shots at things kind of game. Will you go for treasure, even when embedded in the huge spider web slowing down your player considerably? Should you take that extra shot at the enemy or clear the newly created tiny webs of the terrorizing arachnid? Is now the opportunity when you should refill that quiver? Or is the enemy too close and you will likely be killed before being able to kill? Will the bats interfere and freeze our heroine or take a shot intended for a different enemy? Once reaching certain scoring thresholds, you are invited for the ultimate standoff against the all-powerful and agile wizard, including the wizard's ability to teleport and reappear in various parts of the maze. Is it Super Wizard of War, Dark Cavern Pro Advance, or reminiscent of something else for the player? It borrows the best elements of those forerunners while providing a fresh, exciting, and challenging game for the Atari 7800 Pro system. Those familiar with the classic Dark Cavern under the Atari 2600 or Night Stalker under the Intellivision platform 
will feel right at home here. While the game offers up some familiarity with new twists, tricks, and challenges, newcomers will revel in the slick presentation and smooth game mechanics that will keep you coming back for more action and higher scoring. With or without an Atari Vox enabling speech, this is a great game and one to own on the 7800. Thank you, Trevor. I totally agree with that sentiment right there. And uh, yeah, the Atari Vox, really, I think it's just basically an added extra, really. It doesn't really affect the gameplay whatsoever, but it is a cool thing to have. And uh, I really love Trevor's description here of um, Dungeon Stalker. And Jinx says, a great game. I play it often and bought it as soon as it was released. It is challenging, and by the way, I hate the webs. They infuriate me when I see them evil spiders making a web. I wish Player 2 could launch a grenade with the light gun at those SOBs, screwing up my play field with their spider goo. <laughs> yeah, so I play on easy mode with unlimited arrows, etc. There is plenty of dodging action from the enemy's fire. The wizard makes it Atari with the blinking out teleporting going on. <laughs> the bugger talks to us too with the Atari Vox? Says stuff like, uh, 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 or something like that. A real conceited jerk he is. Would he laugh if I could teleport? I doubt it. Because he'd be exploded. That's why. <laughs> I love, oh man, I love that. Uh, I love that response, Jinx. Thanks, thanks so so much for that. Maybe those are some ideas for a Dungeon Stalker sequel. Hmm. Oh, oh, how evil I could be planting thoughts into people's minds. <sighs> well, let's see. Save twenty six hundred tells us love this game that seemingly came out of nowhere. Especially cool that it uses the Atari Vox for speech for seventy eight hundred homebrew to do so, and high score saves. One of the best homebrews for the 7800 to be sure. Improves on Intellivision's Night Stalker and VCS's Dark Cavern, plus adds Wizard of War elements, so what's not to love? And there's a little pink smiley emoticon with hearts for eyes, so I take it to save 2600 likes this game. By the way, at first I was caught off guard by the spacing of the maze in relation to the size of your guy. Well, gal, really. There's wiggle room in the vertical channels, but adds a bit of depth to the gameplay as you can sometimes avoid shots headed your way when there's no time to duck around the corner. Nice. Save 2600 brought up a couple of things I, I really want to address here. That first sentence, love this game that seemingly came out of nowhere. Yeah, those are, I love those when just all of a sudden somebody drops, uh, hey, look what I've been working on. And it's a almost complete game. It's like, whoa, where'd this come from? And uh, I don't know, maybe it's a sales gimmick because it's like, oh my God, this is awesome. This is awesome. It's it, Someone just dropped this game on me. I want to buy it. Take my money. <laughs> but yeah, I have to address it. You, uh, you brought up something I didn't address and I really should. You said uh, there's wiggle room in the vertical channels. Yeah, that's interesting to know because when you're going through the maze, this is really hard to explain in audio. But let's say that you're, you, you're playing a maze game in which you can shoot in the maze. Typical maze game of that time, of the early 80s, there's basically only one path you can shoot down and basically right down the middle. But no, the way the maze in Dungeon Stalker is arranged is that the paths are a little bit bigger than your character. So your shots are going to be at different positions in the tunnel, depending on where you are. And that absolutely does add to the gameplay. And that's part of the reason 
that you have to take four shots at the little spider webs to blow them away. But yeah, that is a great, that's a, a great thing you pointed out there. Save 2600. Thank you. And we heard from Bido Empire. Bido Empire contributes, and I quote, My family's first console was an Intellivision, and Night Stalker was one of my favorites. I thought I was such hot stuff waiting on that bottom corridor, timing my shots to kill the robots just as they appeared. Of course, 20 years later, I realized that's how everybody played the game. There were a few things that kept it from being an all-time great for me, though. It was a little too predictable, large chunks of the maze weren't worth going to, and it starts awfully slow. That said, I love it, and it's a game I can go back to and enjoy. I was pretty excited about Dungeon Stalker. It keeps all the stuff I love about Night Stalker, but fixes the weak points and adds a lot of variety. It's also the first 7800 homebrew I bought, along with Casey Munchkin. It really was a must-have for me. Love the variety, graphics, different difficulty levels. It plays well. It has a smooth difficulty ramp. The wizard stage is awesome. I have a pattern with classic games where I often enjoy the sequel more than the iconic original. I like Millipede much more than Centipede, Ms. Pac-Man more than Pac-Man, etc. Dungeon Stalker falls in that category. The only thing I don't really like is that aiming can be tricky because of the room to wiggle in the corridor. I don't care for it, but as noted in Save 2600's response, maybe I just need more time to get used to it and find ways to take advantage. The demon skull bat graphic is a little weird too. Minor quibbles, but the game is outstanding. Hey, cool. Thank you, Bido Empire. Thank you for your response to that. And I don't think you're alone in that attitude of liking sequels more. I think a lot of people do. Uh, there are, I do know some people who prefer Centipede over Millipede, and quite honestly, I actually play Centipede more than Millipede, but that's simply because I have a friend who's been tutoring me on Centipede, and he got me addicted to it. <laughs> yeah, I can think, I, I, I know of very few people who like Pac-Man more than, say, one of the many Pac-Man sequels out there. So yeah, you're definitely not alone there. And thing is, like, I can't really address, like, weak points of Night Stalker because I haven't really played it. Uh, I've already mentioned how I don't really like Dark Cavern. But, yeah, this Dungeon Stalker is, like, basically a great solution to all the problems that Dark Cavern has. And Cafe Man's thoughts about Night Stalker. I bought it along with a new Atari Vox at the same time, and I was pretty much in love with it for a few weeks. Dungeon Stalker snuck up on me. I wasn't prepared for its amalgamation of excellent gaming ideas. At first, it looked like a simple 7800 point of the Intellivision Night Stalker. But I feel that Dungeon Stalker is more interesting and more fun than the original Night Stalker. Dungeon Stalker is a static maze shooter with gameplay tweaks that evoke fond memories of Berserk, Wizard of War, and even Intellivision Advanced Dungeons & Dragons. You can get the usual Atari Age high-quality box, manual, and artwork with it. There's a clever mix of unique creatures. Some enemies aren't deadly but temporarily stun you. Some shoot. Some creatures' shots disappear mid-screen if you kill them, but other creatures' shots keep going even if they are vanquished. Some are faster than others. The spiders don't shoot, they are easy to hit, but they stop and build little webs in the maze, which can significantly impede your ability to quickly traverse the maze and reach a safe corner. On the other hand, the bats are tiny. Your shots can miss them if you don't aim dead center. 
These kinds of gameplay mechanics give the game endless chances at strategy and fun. The game even provides opportunities for extra treasure, lives, and invincibility if you can grab them. Fun stuff. I enjoy how your shots are actually arrows, and you have to refill your quiver periodically. This creates even more judgment calls in gameplay. Should you spend four of your arrows to break up a spider web, or just fight your way through the web, or take another maze path to reach safety? If you play a novice mode, you have no webs and unlimited arrows. That's fun for a while too, but you are missing a lot of the real game, so I play on standard or higher. My end of game rankings are getting better with each try. Finally, I will mention the Atari Vox. If you don't have it, you'll still enjoy Dungeon Stalker. The default game sounds create a suspenseful mood with the heartbeat sound increasing in volume when you run out of arrows. But include the Atari Vox and you will be in retro gaming heaven. Seriously. And are in the dungeon. The Vox announces at the beginning. And I get that goofy grin that only a grown kid with a new game can get. Much work was put into the variety and number of Vox voice phrases that you hear. Plus, the Vox saves your high scores, which is awesome. The Atari Vox makes Dungeon Stalker, a fun and fresh maze shooter, into an undeniably must-own experience. To my initial surprise, the Atari Vox plugs into Joystick 2 and needs its own speaker. I used a 1/8 inch to RCA and plugged that cable into my TV. The 7800 sounds like all my games are fed directly into my Onkyo sound system. Works and sounds great. I rated 7800 Dungeon Stalker 5 out of 5 stars. And um, after that review, Cafe Man says, The only problem is I have one of the 7800 decks that has the glitch where the Vox hangs up sometimes at the wizard. The game keeps playing, but speech ends when this happens. I simply reach over and unplug and replug the Vox back in and resume playing with the voices when this happens. Unfortunate, but I get around it until a software fix is eventually discovered. All right, Cafe Man, thank you so much. It was very uh, insightful right there. And thanks for that tip about the Atari Vox, too, for those who are going to have some problems with it. Oh, by the way, earlier, Save 2600's, uh, Save 2600 asked whether Dungeon Stalker is the first 7800 homebrew to use the Atari Vox, uh, for speech at least. And I think it's the only one. I don't know of any other ones that do. And I'll be honest with you, I didn't realize that it, yeah, I really need to read the manuals in these things because I didn't even know Dungeon Stalker used the Atari Vox for speech until I got the Atari Vox and I just, I just keep it plugged in. And, uh, when I played Dungeon Stalker to prepare for this episode, I noticed, I was like, wait a minute, I'm hearing talking coming from the, the Atari Vox. Oh my God. And I agree wholeheartedly with Cafe Man that if you're playing the easy mode with, unlimited arrows and everything it is well at least the way i see it it is a boring game so yeah you definitely want to play standard or higher maybe easy mode if you're having trouble with the other ones you just want to get a feel for the game but yeah i totally agree play with the harder mode than the uh easy one i guess that's why it defaults at standard mode but yeah thank you cafe man thank you for your feedback and thank all of you for your feedback. So, that's Dungeon Stalker. As for my thoughts on Dungeon Stalker, well, it's 
not really the kind of game I would normally play because you know I'm just not into the dungeon kind of thing or that medieval stuff or things that has uh, wizards and all that stuff. But I gotta admit, I do like Wizard of War, and Dungeon Stalker definitely has that Wizard of War vibe. Well, let me put it to you this way: I like it. I like it a lot, actually. Do I love it? Um, maybe, maybe. Uh, again, it's just because my personal taste in video game tropes and stuff. The more I play it, the more I really, really do like it. And really, the more that I was doing the research for this episode, the more I was like, oh, man, I still got to get back and play this thing again. And um, I got to tell you, though, if I had previously played Night Stalker on Dark Cavern, I would probably be absolutely flipping like crazy over Dungeon Stalker. And from what I can tell, that is the case with those who have played those games before. Now, I didn't play Night Stalker during the short time I had an Intellivision, nor did I ever play it when my cousins or my childhood best friend had an Intellivision, and I never played Dark Cavern until I actually did the research for this episode, and I was playing it on my Atari Flashback Portable, actually. And I gotta say, when I was playing Dark Cavern, I was really thinking to myself, man, I wish I were playing Dungeon Stalker. <laughs> And when I talked about Frenzy and Berserk in the previous episode, I commented about how I loved recording that episode because I learned so much. And you know what? The same holds true for Dungeon Stalker. Reading about the history of Night Stalker and Dark Cavern, uh, reading the development thread in Atari Age, it really got me excited about uh, Dungeon Stalker, even though I had already played Dungeon Stalker many times before I recorded this episode. Oh, and speaking of things that I learned, what's really interesting is it seems to me that Night Stalker is probably one of the flagship Intellivision games. I mean, I might be wrong. I don't know, but at least that's the impression that I got from reading people's comments about it. And what's interesting is when you think Intellivision games, probably the first thing that comes to your mind is Blue Sky Rangers. Well, the Blue Sky Rangers actually didn't have anything to do with uh, Night Stalker. If, if anything, maybe maybe some of the guys on that team happened to test it or something, but that's it. I really... At least I was not able to find any definitive evidence that anybody from the Blue Sky Rangers was actually involved in Night Stalker. But anyway, the next episode, which I plan to have out in two weeks, will be about another Bob DiCrescenzo game. This time it's going to be the Atari 7800 port of Midway's Junior Pac-Man. And I've had a couple of requests for that. And in fact, I believe Dungeon Stalker was also a listener request. Uh, I apologize for not remembering who requested what, but whoever you are, you're welcome. <laughs> Hope I'm doing a satisfactory job for you. And for episode seven, I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to do this, but it looks like it's going to happen. And I'm really excited about this. I'm going to talk about Combat 1990. So if you have any feedback about that one, hey, send it all over. And um, I will be taking feedback for Junior Pac-Man or any other Atari 7800 homebrew I've already talked about or will be talking about, which, uh, let's face it, is going to be all of them eventually. You can email me at homebrew78 at fab4it.com. Again, that's F-A-B and then the number 4, it.com. You can send an old-fashioned text email or an audio submission in WAVE, AIFF, MP3, or FLAC format to that address if you wish to submit an audio um, submission, I guess. <laughs> if you're on Facebook, you can post to the Atari 7800 Homebrew Podcast Facebook group. 
You can go to Atari Age and post to the Atari 7800 Homebrew podcast thread in the gaming publications and websites forum. And there's also a thread for this podcast at forums.atari.io and the podcasts board. And of course, you can tweet me at homebrew78. If you wish to support the Atari 7800 Homebrew Podcast financially, you can go to patreon.com slash homebrew78, and what happens is you can set up a monthly contribution. It could be as little as a dollar. Well, actually, technically, it could be as little as nothing, uh, or as much as you want. Uh, It would really be nice if you could. If you can't, hey, that's nice, too. I'm just happy that you're listening. Um, If you love hearing my dulcet voice, uh, you can also listen to my other podcast, which is Pie Factory Podcast. And in the episode that's coming out soon, probably within the next couple of days, Jimmy G and I are discussing the arcade games Spy Hunter and Vanguard. Hmm, what could the theme be? Anyway, um, I just want to say thank you all so much for listening. I really, really appreciate that. I've been getting, um, I'm, I'm, I gotta say, I'm shocked at the response that I'm getting. I mean, uh, just thank you so much, everybody. I really do appreciate it. And hey, if you're listening to me, then please give these hardworking homebrew developers the support they deserve. Take care, folks. The skeleton warrior is going to shoot, 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 shot, 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 shot,